Well, we're going to continue our series called Storyline that we began last week. And I just want to do a little bit of review uh, from last week before we get into the lesson this morning. What we learned last week is that Scripture is not 66 different stories. Scripture is one big story. And that when we look at how Jesus viewed even the Old Testament, he saw all of the Old Testament coming to its fulfillment in him and his gospel, didn't we? And that's not just how Jesus preached the Old Testament, that's how the apostles did as well. We specifically saw how Paul saw that all of the Old Testament pointed to Christ. And so if we as Christians want to be prepared, I hope in your personal Bible reading to read the Old Testament, you'll get a lot more out of it if you understand how the old connects with the new. And I think all of us have some idea of that, but there's large gaps So we can maybe flip to certain chapters of the Old Testament and understand how maybe it connects with the New Testament. But there would be large sections that we don't really know what to make of it. What do we make of these dietary laws? What do we make of these uh, weird things that are going on in different stories of the Bible? And what I told you last week is the reason we want to study this, and this is really important because I want to make sure that I don't just fill your head with knowledge. I want to equip you for a Christian life. Number one, the reason we want to understand this is if we better understand the Old Testament prequel, we will understand a whole lot more about our New Testament. And we talked a little bit about how if you miss out on the prequels in a movie series, then you're going to miss out on some of the richness of the later sequels in that same movie series. Remember, we talked about Avengers Endgame, and we talked about The Lord of the Rings, or we talked about Harry Potter, or whatever series or Star Wars you could think of. If you've watched the earlier movies, you're going to get more out of the later ones. And the same is true with our Old Testament and our New Testament. You would be surprised how much more you could get out of your New Testament if you understand the Old Testament. The second reason we want to do this is I want you as a Christian to be equipped to just crack open your Bible and read it. I want you to be equipped to crack open your Bible and read it. And let me just give you a personal example because that's the best, that's the largest store of examples I have is what my own examples are. Um, I wrote the lesson today on sacrifice a few weeks ago. Just recently, my wife and I started reading the dreaded book of Leviticus. And I can tell you, I have not opened up a single resource, a commentary or, or anything, study guide on Leviticus. I'm in chapter 17 out of 24. And I'll tell you what, just understanding what we'll talk about today, I, I've actually found Leviticus to be really enriching. Now, there's some stuff that's like, you know, what does it matter to me that, you know, you cut off one leg and the priest eats that? I understand that. Not all of that has a hidden meaning, but there is a lot more you get out of it when you understand the connections between some of these themes. And so, Christian, I want you, if you haven't got this yet, my driving passion is for Christians to read their Bibles. Just read the Bible. That's how God gave it to you. I think he wants you to read it that way every once in a while. So I want you to be equipped to do that. And I, I think that if we have a couple little touch points with how these themes connect, we will read our Bibles much more intelligently. And, and, and because of that, we'll not be bored. We won't have to be bored. It'll be your fault if you're bored, not God's fault, right? And so I want to equip you so that you could crack open Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, 
and understand a lot more about what you're reading and therefore be more motivated to keep reading, okay? Third motivation, why we're doing this. Because if we're not careful, our understanding about doctrine even can be affected if we misunderstand the connection between Old and New Testament, okay? There are certain doctrines that, that, that doesn't really apply. You don't really need to understand it too much. Um, but things like the end times really hinge on your understanding of whether the old, and how much the old and the new are connected, how much there, there's discontinuity there. But here's the question that I think if you're, if you're a thinking person, you, you, you're gonna wanna ask either now or at some point in the series. Pastor Mike, how do we make sure that we read the Old Testament properly without over-symbolizing everything? right? That, that's not how we read the Old Testament. This symbolizes this, and this symbolizes this, and this symbolizes this. That's not a faithful way to read the Old Testament. How do we make sure that we're not falling into that error, that we're actually properly interpreting the Old Testament, and we're not just like making fanciful connections, right? Because it's going to be really important that when we read back in the Old Testament, and we look at a lot of different themes, that you're going to be surprised how much remains the same and how much even changes, Themes like um, the temple, the theme of covenant, the theme of the land of Israel, the theme of kingship or marriage or the priesthood. It's going to be really important that we read back properly into the Old Testament. And so we want to make sure that we don't over-symbolize things. And so the reason this morning I want to start with the theme of sacrifice is I want to show you a theme that we all understand, I think, how it changes from old to new. Are we in agreement on that? No one's here like, Pastor, why aren't we offering sacrificial animals? What's up with that? I think all of us understand how that's fulfilled in Christ. But what I want to show you in this lesson is a pattern of how we're going to proceed with the other lessons because as much as sacrifice changes from old to New Testament, everything else I just named is going to change about that much. And as much as sacrifice informs the New Testament understanding of Jesus, the other themes I mentioned are going to inform the New Testament understanding of Jesus and the Christian life. Does that make sense? So as much as sacrifice changes, buckle up, kingship, marriage, well, somebody's marriage, um, the land of Israel, those things, our understanding is going to be drastically changed by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what I want you to understand is I want to take a theme that we all understand how it changes and lay it out as kind of an example. And so that when we get to further lessons, you're not like, well, you're just, you're just making this up. No, 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 this, this happens everywhere in the Old and the New Testament. So here's the question. What, is the old, what does the theme of sacrifice mean to us, right? Why can we as Christians say that God no longer requires animal sacrifices, and then I think for most of us, we have this question. What relevance, when I read in Leviticus, or I read in Genesis about these sacrifices, what does that mean to me other than, thank God Jesus died for me instead of a lamb? And here's what you're going to find. I'm going to give you a little preview. That this theme of sacrifice not only tells us something profound about Jesus, but it will instruct us uh, I think in a view of the Lord's Supper that many of us neglect, that we miss the significance of the Lord's Supper. 
And then it also instruct us something about how we ought to live our daily Christian life, okay? So let's buckle up and go into this theme of sacrifice. I just wanna trace this through. So let's start with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, 21. And what I'm gonna do is just highlight along the way the story of sacrifice. So hopefully it'll kind of sound like a story. And then I'm gonna point out some different things along the way. You and I have been in Genesis together on Sunday mornings. Hopefully you remember some of this stuff. But remember what God's main rule for Adam and Eve was in chapter number two. You cannot touch, or sorry, you cannot eat I almost sound like the serpent. You cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says that in the day that you eat, what will happen? You'll die. Good job, Faith. And so Adam and Eve, hate to break to you, spoiler alert, they ate of the tree. Oh man, peace. You're like, yeah, let's go. I, I knew an answer. You're right. So they're going to eat of the tree, right? And they're going to eat of the tree. That's, by the way, what the lesson is or the sermon is about this morning. But here's what's interesting. Did Adam and Eve die? They didn't die right away. I think Adam lived somewhere in the ballpark of 900 years. Not quite an immediate death, right? So, but what's interesting is right after the curse is pronounced, and we're going to get to this in, I think, two weeks, this interesting statement happens in Genesis 3.21 that God made a coat of skins. Now, I'm not a, a hunter per se, but I don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that if you're going to making a coat of skins, what is happening there? You're killing an animal. You can't make a skin without what? Death. So God said that in the day you'll eat, what will happen? You'll die. And by God's grace, that day... Adam and Eve didn't die. Should they have died right away? Would God have been just to kill them right away? Yeah, he told them, hey, you're gonna die. But who died that day? An animal. And what's interesting, we'll get to this a little bit this morning, hopefully, is that they had already tried to cover their nakedness, right? And what did Adam and Eve cover their nakedness with? Fig leaves, right? right? That's what the, all the Sunday school flannel graphs have, right? The very like full covering of leaf, you know, um, it was a covering for their shame. And so what we see in the story of Adam and Eve, when we look at the sacrifice that God offers in Genesis 3, we see that God sacrifices God's substitution to help us avoid our own death and to cover the shame of our sin. All the way back in Genesis 3, if you're one of God's people, you're reading that and understanding that God's sacrifice is provided by him it's provided by him. Doesn't that sound like Mount Moriah in Genesis 22? The Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh. So then this story of sacrifice evolves later when we get to Genesis chapter number four with uh, Cain and Abel. And here's the story of Cain and Abel, right? In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought, and here's the observation, the fruit of the ground, an offering unto the Lord. What did Abel bring? He brought the firstlings of his flock and the fat. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering, but unto Cain and his offering, he had not respect. And then it details Cain's response. He gets upset. Now, here's the question. Why did God approve of Cain's, or sorry, Abel's offering and not Cain's? 
Some would say that it, it must be, Pastor Mike, this idea of the flock. Abel was offering a lamb and Cain was offering vegetables, right? Because we think, we think how people think, you know, in the book of Leviticus, right? There needs to be a lamb to atone for sin, not a vegetable. But think about this. There were vegetable offerings in the Old Testament. It doesn't seem that God's manner of approval is based on the type of materials that Cain and Abel were offering. If we're just reading Genesis 4, it seems that it's not about the materials, but the quality or the quantity, maybe by this firstling idea. So, so just to review, God is receiving a sacrifice from Cain and Abel. It doesn't seem to be an atonement sacrifice. It seems to be more of a tribute, more of a thanksgiving sacrifice offered to God out of gratitude for what he's blessed them with, the flock and the field, right? And so they're offering to God, they're, they're supposedly something that is due to somebody who's blessed them greatly. And Cain shows up and it just says, he brought fruit. But Abel shows up and he brought the firstlings of the flock. That was the best and the fat. That's the best part of the meat. Somebody say amen to that. All right, thank you, Michael. Wow. Throw, throw a man a bone, y'all. Come on. So what do we learn from this? Well, we learn from Genesis that there's something about the quality that's off with Cain's sacrifice. Are you with me? There's something about the quality that's off. He, 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 it's not that he offered vegetables. That's not the problem because it says he was the keeper of the ground. So they're both offering of what God has given them. They're both offering gratitude for their increase, maybe similar to how we would give a tithe unto the Lord off of our increase, right? Robert would offer from his job at Genesis and Rick would offer from his job at Tyson. But there seems to be a difference, not in the material, materials, but in the quality, in the sacrifice, right? But then if you read 1 John 3, 12, and I don't have it with me, but 1 John 3 talks about that Cain offered with an unrepentant heart. So then when we see 1 John 3, we recognize I mean, John probably, I mean, he's inspired by God, so he must have known something we don't know, that there was something about the heart that was important here. And so here's what we learn from Genesis 4. That sacrifice isn't just about what you give, but how you give it. We learn that God will not accept good sacrifices that are accompanied by a bad heart. God will not accept token offerings that don't reflect the generosity due to a king. Friend, that doesn't just apply to somebody bringing a firstling from a flock. That applies to you offering your service, offering your money, offering your time. What, is, what does Paul say? God loves a giver. He says God loves cheerful giver. Right? in the head. But what did Samuel say to Saul as Saul tried to offer a sacrifice? He says, the Lord doesn't have uh, delight in burnt offerings as much as he has in a heart of obedience. Right? So sacrifice isn't just about what you give. It's about how you give it. So then the next sacrifice we see in the Bible is in Genesis 8 with a guy named Noah. Remember what Noah's about, right? The earth is multiplying, and instead of filling the earth with God's glory, humankind is filling the earth with violence and sin. 
So God says, I'm gonna deal with the sin. I'm gonna judge the entire world. And he saw Noah, a man who is righteous, but also we see simultaneously, he found grace in the eyes of God. We'll talk about that next week under the theme of covenant. And so God spares Noah and he's gonna rebuild all of humanity from Noah. If you read the text and you start looking at the words, you recognize that when Moses is writing this, Noah is functioning as a second Adam. He has the same commands. A lot of the same stuff is said. He sins when it comes to the fruit of the vine. One of God's trees is the downfall of his sin. And as Noah leaves the ark and God has judged the earth, what's interesting is that the Bible says that it wasn't the flood that appeased God's wrath. God's wrath is not appeased by just angrily taking it out on sinners. That what appeased God's wrath was not the ability to judge the earth. What appeased God's wrath was the sacrifice of Noah. It says Noah built an altar unto the Lord. And this is a big sacrifice. I don't know, we don't know how many animals he took on the ark, but of every species of animal that was clean, he took of every clean beast and every clean fowl. And he offered burnt offerings on the altar. We'll talk about that in a minute, but a burnt offering is a type of sacrifice that nothing is left over. The priest doesn't eat. No one enjoys any part of it. It's all given up to God. It's totally burned and consumed on the altar. And God is recorded to have a very specific reaction to this. It says, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor. When you see wording like that in your New Testament, you need to be thinking sacrifice, sacrifice. And the Lord said in his heart, in response to a sacrifice, the Lord said, I will not again, I will not again curse the ground. Does this phrase sound familiar to you? It's from Genesis 3, right? God cursed the ground for Adam's sake, and he said, um, for the, I will not curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite anymore every living thing as I have done. And then God says, I'm gonna allow the earth to continue. I'm gonna allow history to continue. And he says, I'm gonna let seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. And, and later on in Genesis 9, we see that God establishes, and we'll talk about this next week, a covenant with Noah. And God gives a sign, a token of the covenant. And what was that sign of God's promise to Noah and the rest of the earth that he would not destroy the earth? What was the sign of that promise God made that was put in the sky? A rainbow, right? And that says that in the next, or not the next verse, but in a, a surrounding verse in Genesis 9. And so here's what we learn from Noah's sacrifice. We learn that sacrifice appeases God's wrath and initiates a covenant with God. Is this sounding like someone else's sacrifice yet? Who initiated a covenant with God and appeased God's wrath? Well, we know who that is. His name is Jesus. And what's interesting, you think that sacrifice is all over the Old Testament, but other than really one other time, the sacrifice thing doesn't really show up. We have Abraham, Mount Moriah. It, it repeats a lot of things we just covered, so I'm not gonna cover that. 
And sacrifice is totally absent from the biblical story until Exodus chapter 12 with Passover. Now, you want, now what's interesting to me about the story of Je, uh, God's people in the land of Egypt is that the whole reason God wanted to let his people go, Moses said multiple times, if you read the story, he says, I want my people to go and offer sacrifices. We need to go and offer a sacrifice unto our God. And he asks uh, Pharaoh again and again and again, we need to go and offer sacrifice. Let us go three days journey into the wilderness. We just want to offer sacrifice. We'll even come back. You don't deserve it, but we're going to come back. Pharaoh won't let him offer a sacrifice. And we know the whole story, right? There's 10 plagues, right? In the very last plague, God calls his people to a sacrifice. And this sacrifice is very significant. This sacrifice would be the difference between life and death, right? They needed to kill a lamb. And what's interesting, this is the first time I think in the biblical story that it's really clear that the sacrifice they needed to offer was one that was pure. It was without blemish. It was a firstborn of the flock because they were offering the sacrifice to spare the firstborn of their house. And if you read Exodus, the firstborn represents not just someone who's a representative of the house, but God says, uh, Israel is my firstborn son. So there's symbolism there and he calls them to offer the sacrifice. But what's really interesting about this whole Passover thing is that this sacrifice, unlike any of the others that we've seen in the Old Testament, it's accompanied by a meal, a feast. Look at Exodus 12, 14. God calls the Passover not a sacrifice. He calls it a feast to the Lord. A feast to the Lord. That's interesting. It would be a meal. Exodus 12, 11 says it's the Lord's Passover, which gives us the idea that God is inviting them to a meal. It's my dinner party. It's a feast to the Lord, right? And here we go again, a feast. Now look at this. He says, there are only certain people that can eat at this feast. He says, there shall no stranger eat thereof. This is somebody who's not part of the covenant family, someone who's not a part of the nation of Israel because they've not accepted circumcision. Now, someone who's not a, a Jew could, could eat this, but they had to enter into the covenant by observing circumcision or the firstborn male or the, the head of the household receiving circumcision. So God says that this, this meal that I'm inviting you to, not everybody can have this meal. Only those who are part of a covenant family can have this meal. And then in Exodus 12, 2, he says that this meal is a marker of a new beginning. When we think of January 1, we think of new beginnings, right? Well, their January 1, so to speak, was Passover. Look at this. It's the beginning of months. And it's the first month of the year. So here this Passover, God says, I, I want you to offer a perfect offering. And what we see in Exodus 12 is that sacrifice initiates table fellowship with God. That is a profound Statement. Because God is the one who kicked Adam out of the garden. But through sacrifice, listen, through sacrifice, he's calling his people to fellowship with him. Table fellowship. That's the most intimate type of fellowship. 
Hey, listen, it's one thing to stand around and talk to somebody, but if you sit around a dinner table, it's another type of fellowship. And God is calling to his people to have table fellowship with himself. So then we have the sacrifices of the Mosaic law. This is where it gets, for most of us Christians, we're like, we're like tuning out, you know what I mean? You're like, I don't understand that stuff. And all of Leviticus is basically detailing these sacrifices. And it, Moses is really adding detail to the sacrificial system that we've seen hints of throughout the biblical story. And, and what we see is that there's really three purposes of the sacrifices. You've got to get this, okay? You've got to get this. That the sacrifices of the law of Moses had three purposes. They were either offered as an atonement for sin, for fellowship with God, or as an expression of dedication to God. Some sacrifices involve more than one of those three. And I'm going to kind of explain to you some of these sacrifices really briefly. There's a, a lot of different ones. And boy, if you read Exodus, there's a sacrifice for this, a sacrifice for that, a sacrifice for this month, sacrifice for that month, right? There's a lot of them, which says, hey, we're all really bad sinners, and we need help having fellowship with God. And there's the, so Leviticus details the burnt offerings, which kind of include the atonement and the dedication part of this. Because the atonement is uh, there when you're offering a sacrifice of an animal Burnt offerings were all often offered as atonement. You'd put your hands on the head of that sacrifice, and instead of you receiving the death that you deserve for your sins, that animal would receive death. And then that whole animal would be consumed on the altar as an expression of dedication to God. That's why when they dedicate the temple, Solomon rounds up a, a ridiculous amount of animals, and he burns them all to the ground as an expression of, we're not taking any of this. God, it's all yours. By the way, everything God gives you is all his. It's all his. And in that burnt offering, that was what they were saying. They're saying, God, it's all yours. I'm only privileged to have a part of this. That's the burnt offering. We see peace offerings in the Old Testament. Peace offerings were interesting. Peace offerings, yes, they, they had animals sometimes, but sometimes there would be a liquid element, a drink offering. And the normal atonement elements would be there. You'd put your hand on the animal, right? And you would kill it because it was receiving death that you deserved for your sins. But there was also a fellowship element because if you are a priest, listen, if you're a priest, you would receive part of that animal and you would eat it. Now, in, in ancient cultures, sacrifices were seen as giving food to God. But what's interesting about Israelite sacrifices, I think God is making this statement, is that it's not just about giving food to God, but God wants to share a meal with his people. So that altar was like a table for God that he was consuming to partake of that meal, but then the priest would either eat meat or he would drink in the presence of his God. It would be like the king is spreading out a table and inviting the priest to feast with him. There was the Passover. We talked about that one. There's vegetable offerings. I already talked about that a little bit with Cain, but the most famous vegetable offering that we all know about is called the tithe. And the vegetable offerings were often happening at different intervals of Israel's life, at harvest time. These were an expression of dedication to God. God, you gave us this harvest, so we're going to give you part of it back as a symbol that we recognize that all of it belongs unto you. Then there are these sin offerings, 
guilt offerings is sometimes how it's called in the Bible. And there was guilt offerings for all sorts of stuff. If you betrayed someone, they betrayed you. The most famous guilt offering is the one that was offered on behalf of the guilt of all the nation on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is detailed in Leviticus 16. And what's interesting is that if you lay out the whole Torah, all five books, the exact middle of the Torah is the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. It is the highest, holiest day on the calendar of Israel where the high priest who could not enter the most holy place where God's presence was said to be, he would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the nation. He would confess the sins of the nation over that sacrifice. He would place his hand on the sacrifice. It would receive death and they would let one of them go away, right? That's where we get the famous term scapegoat because they would let that goat go off into the wilderness showing that the sins were cast out of the camp. And then all these sacrifices, it's really important, the location they're offered. They're offered in the tabernacle. They're offered in the temple because why? Because all these sacrifices were to show how God's people could, in a sense, re-enter Eden. Could have the fellowship that they lost at the original sin of Adam. Then we start seeing the, what's interesting is that from like Leviticus For all the Old Testament, nothing changes. Same sacrifice, year after year after year after year. Nothing changes. Hundreds and hundreds and maybe even thousands of years, they're offering the same sacrifices. And what you notice in the story is that nothing's getting better. (laughs) These people aren't having better fellowship with God. They are despising God more and more. And so we start seeing the prophets coming around and criticizing the sacrifices. And their main criticism is this, that these sacrifices are not accompanied by repentance or obedience. They're not accompanied by repentance or obedience because the prophets start saying, it's not just about the thing that you're offering, it's about the heart that comes along with it. And there's strong words in the prophets. Listen to Hosea's strong words. This ought to have gotten your attention as an Israelite that God is literally saying, I don't want your sacrifices. I want mercy. I want you to display my mercy to other people. I don't need your sacrifices. I want you to know me. I don't need your burnt offerings. I want you to know me. And then Malachi 1.10 is is the strongest condemnation. The way we would say it in our modern vernacular is something like this. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. And God says this, after they've built the second temple, I will not accept an offering at your hand. God says, your offerings are so bad, just shut up the temple. And the nation of Israel should have understood this because when they built the second temple, I don't know if this ever occurred to you, that second temple is very different. You walk in the most holy place, there's no ark. The ark is gone. And what do the ark symbolize? The presence of God. There's no, you walk in, it's an empty room. You read the story of the Bible. When they built the tabernacle, what happens? God comes down on a glory cloud. 
When they built the temple under Solomon, what happens? God comes down in glory cloud. When they built the second temple, what happens? Haggai says the people were weeping. Not just because the temple is smaller, y'all, because the temple was not filled with the presence of God. And the prophets start telling God's people that there's a need for a greater sacrifice. And we know Isaiah 53 well, but read it through the lens of sacrifice. It shows that this suffering servant would be bruised for our iniquities. Yet he would be offering a sense of atonement because the chastisement was upon him. Look at it. Um, verse six, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Does that not sound like the, the offerer putting his hand on that burnt offering? And Isaiah 53, 10 is more explicit. He says, you will make his soul an offering for sin. And when he shall see his seed, this is talking about God, he will prolong his days. What is that? That is mercy. That's God's wrath being appeased because of a greater sacrifice that would be offered by the suffering servant of God. See, here's what's happening. The Old Testament sacrifices are pointing to the superior sacrifice of Christ that replaced them. As a Christian, what do we do with all this? What's the, what's the big deal? That when you and I read of these sacrifices, in the Old Testament, you know this, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time, but it points you to the fact that there was always coming a better sacrifice. Friend, it was not a surprise that God's people needed a better sacrifice. Think about this. Just go back to Adam and Eve's story. What did Adam and Eve have for clothing before they sinned? Nothing. They put on fig leaves, and when God offered a sacrifice for them, what was their clothing afterward? Skins, which tells us that even with sacrifice, they weren't able to return fully to the state of innocence in which they were created. There's an insufficiency there. It didn't completely rewind the clock. It didn't completely reverse the curse. And, and the, the writer of Hebrews, which if you want a masterclass on this idea of connecting the Old and New Testament, just read the book of Hebrews. He says, think about it. All these sacrifices were offered in an earthly tabernacle, which if you understand what Moses and God are getting at, the earthly tabernacle was just there as a picture of a heavenly one that was far superior. And he says, Jesus sacrificed superior because it was not offered in an earthly tabernacle. His sacrifice was offered in the heavenly one. His sacrifice, unlike the day of atonement, was not once a year. His sacrifice was offered eternally. It was a superior sacrifice. We have a perfect sin covering. But what we also have, listen, this is where it's really important. This is where it might be new to you. That sacrifice of Jesus initiates a table fellowship with God that has always been prevalent in the sacrificial system. And where do we find this table fellowship with God? Not at the Lord's Passover, but the Lord's Supper. That's where our table fellowship is. I don't have time to go to 1 Corinthians. This is Hebrews 9, 14. But in 1 Corinthians 10, the author, Paul, makes the point 
He's criticizing the Corinthians because they would go and eat the meat offered to idols in the temple. And he says, listen, y'all, you can't go to their temple and have fellowship with devils and then come back to our church and sit at the table and have fellowship with God. Now, if I were to ask you, what's the purpose of the Lord's Supper? All of us would say something probably similar to this. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to remember. And that's true. But think about it. Why would God ask you to purify yourself from sins if all the Lord's Supper is is a mental exercise? What are you telling me, Pastor Mike? I got purified my sins before I remember Christ's sacrifice on my bed at night in my prayers? But how much more sense does it make that if God sees the Lord's Supper as table fellowship with him, that he would, off, he would require you to purge yourself from your sins the same way that the priest had to before he could go to the altar? Because the Lord's Supper, my friend, is far more significant than just a mental remembrance exercise. The Lord's Supper in a way that I can't explain tangibly, is table fellowship with Jesus. This is an element that if we understand how the sacrifices connect in the Old Testament and the New, it, it adds detail and color, and we understand that that Lord's Supper table fellowship is just pointing us to the day that we will have a table fellowship with God at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now think about this. If the Lord's Supper's table fellowship, how much more important is it that we come to the table ready for fellowship? Having dealt with our strife, having dealt with our bad relationships, having dealt with our unrepentant sin, we're sitting down at a table with the King of Kings. And how much more serious is it if we treat it lightly? If we miss out and don't show up? Or how much more serious is it is it if we ourselves or we allow others in our family or our friends to partake of that supper who are not part of God's covenant family? Because from Exodus 12, God has always fenced off table fellowship with him only to those who are part of God's covenant family. Oh, my friend, at the Lord's Supper, you and I are like those priests who partake of part of the sacrifice no wonder Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. Take and eat. Because the Old Testament sacrifice pictured the presence of God that is present in the Lord's Supper. Here's the last relevance we have. They picture the complete dedication we must offer to God. As New Testament believers, we're not called to offer animal sacrifices, are we? Because who was the more perfect animal sacrifice? It was Jesus. But here's the question we all have to ask ourselves. Did sacrifices end with Jesus? No. As a Christian, we don't say, phew, good thing God doesn't ask me to offer a whole lot to him. No, Peter said, no, we are lively stones and we are built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, and we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You might write this statement down. The sacrifice of Jesus doesn't mean God requires less of you, but that God enables you to give him what he requires. Because of Christ. He doesn't demand less. 
In fact, he demands more because now you are able to give it to him. How? By Jesus Christ. How do we give up these sacrifices to God? Well, Paul in Philippians 4, he calls the offering to the church a sweet-smelling savor. Meaning that our church giving is a sacrifice to God. Friend, can I just get you to consider, does your giving reflect complete dedication to God? Does your giving remind us of the sacrifice these people made in the Old Testament? By the way, they weren't just given 10%, y'all. You count up all the tithes, it's over 20%. I'm not saying there's a number, but by golly, I mean, if, if we look at the Old Testament, we understand that the number ought to be kind of big. God's not satisfied like Cain with a token offering offered with a bad heart because he's given you a new heart by Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13 says to let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Friend, when you sing to God this morning, let it be a picture of the sacrifice that you ought to give on that altar. Can you imagine if Old Testament worshipers approached the altar with the same way we approach the singing corporately? Y'all think I just got a pet peeve. I don't. I worry that a holy God looks down at casual worship and is frustrated with token offerings. Romans 12 says it so clearly, doesn't it? Paul says, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you would present not your animals, your bodies, not just the first of your flock, but your entire life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. And this is interesting to me. It's your reasonable service. It's your reasonable service. As we come to the end of this study on the theme of sacrifice, here's what I hope it gives you. It gives you an idea that when you read in Exodus about the Passover lamb, that it reminds you of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Paul says Christ is our Passover. As you read of the sacrifices in Leviticus, if you get there like Shelby and I are right now, it reminds you of the complete dedication God calls you to as a Christian that you now can offer him because everything you offer is acceptable by Jesus Christ. And as you read the prophets criticizing the half-hearted sacrifices of Israel in literally every prophetic book, let it remind you that God's atonement for your sins and your heartfelt obedience are a package deal. God doesn't just care about what you give him. He cares about how you give it. Let us this morning offer our lives and our songs as a sacrifice of praise to our God. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. And it's because of that, God, we can turn around. And God, I hope and appreciation for the sin offering Jesus was for us. Lift up our voices as a sacrifice back to you. God, it'll never be enough. But because of the blood of Jesus, you say it's acceptable. 
Lord, let us rest content that if we come to you with heartfelt obedience, you accept our sacrifices as measly as they are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All righty, you're dismissed. And we got about 10, 15 minutes before we felt we sing together this morning in our morning service.